open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Thanks to the recent FDA approval of the Visumax laser for treatment of myopia, the team at Zeiss is surely smiling. However, I wanted to get some real-world insights into the smile procedure. Will this challenge LASIK for correcting myopia, and where will it fit into our refractive tool belt? Today I sit down with Dr. John Doan to get his opinions about the safety and efficacy of the procedure and how it stacks up against LASIK and also which patients might respond best to the treatment. And if you know John, you know we'll be talking about a host of interesting topics from IOL technology in the era of refractive cataract surgery to the quest for the holy grail of lenses and finally we'll wrap up with thoughts on managed care and the so-called skinny networks. Listen in, this is going to be a good one. This episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid is sponsored by Centurion from Alcon. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today I have with me Dr. John Doan from Kansas City. And John, I just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. Tell us, for those who don't know, give us a little blurb on, on where you're practicing and the focus of your practice, and then we'll talk a little bit more. Thank you for having me, Gary. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm obviously in Kansas City, as you mentioned. I've been there just starting my 20th year. Let me take that back. It's my 19th year in Kansas City. <laughs> Who's counting? Yes. Uh, fellowship trained refractive surgery. That's really kind of my love is doing refractive surgery, be it uh, initially at the cornea, now at the IOL. That's kind of everything that drives me. But in doing that, I still have a pretty broad practice. And I still do transplants, still do uh, posterior transplants, um, and do just standard cataract surgery as well. Excellent. And as you have been really passionate about uh, refractive surgery, I know you've really seen the evolution. You know, you've, you've been through, um, I would assume, the RK days. And did you do much RK back in the day? Yeah, great question. I was right at the precipice of um, laser vision correction coming to the forefront. During my fellowship, uh, Exmoor lasers were approved in the U.S. So I started in July in fellowship, and the first laser summit was approved in October. And then uh, Visex was approved in March of '96, so it I never had to do RK. So That's awesome. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> From yeah. My perspective. Yippee! You know, yeah. So you were you've been through laser vision correction. It sounds like really from the beginning. And as we've talked in you know, over the past few days and in, in the past also, I know you've had an experience in what may be the next evolution um, in refractive surgery with uh, the femtosecond laser from Zeiss. So give us a little bit of your experience about you know, the smile technique. I'd love to hear you know, why you feel like this, this is a compelling technology, what patients you like to treat with this, and maybe the pros and cons of this versus what we're doing now with, with uh, LASIK and PRK. Yeah. Great question. I think that the the paradigm is always going to shift. And if there's anything I learned over, over 20 years is surgeons, but maybe even more importantly, patients will always migrate to a better technology, a better technique. What could be better than LASIK? I mean, LASIK right now is fantastic. It's absolutely incredible. Are there any shortcomings? I would say you're creating a flap, although I love LASIK. I've had LASIK on myself. There is a, some limitations with LASIK. I sh certainly, from the warfighter groups, the flap is still an issue. Right. For you know, if you were not that I'm going to be joining the MMA, but <laughs> you know, if you, anything combative, anything uh, uh, contact sport-wise, people have concerns of that. So for me, where smile comes in, if you just look at it, it appears that it could be safer because you have a, again a small incision. So the structural integrity of the cornea essentially remains. 
that is a huge selling point. And then when you say, I'm, my area of surgery is actually a smaller diameter than LASIK, that means I'm incising fewer corneal nerves, hey, maybe we can get less dry eye. That, again, seems very appealing, not just short-term, let's say that first three to four months after lamellar surgery, but what about the rest of the patient's life? I think that that may, may be a benefit. Where I really got my socks knocked off with smile is when I looked at the outcomes for the hires. The higher corrections had a were just as, let's say, on target or as predictable as the lower corrections. And I think the reason is, is we're doing the surgery in a vacuum. With eczema laser, we have to worry about what happens at the end of the optical train, the last lens in the corneal surface, humidity, barometric pressure, particulate matter, temperature, dehydration of the cornea. Sure. That's when the higher corrections, we lose that predictability. We simply don't see that with the higher smile corrections. So you basically have a flat uh, dose response, if you will, with smile, whether it's a one diopter treatment or 10 diopters, the response to the treatment is essentially flat. Uh, where you're getting the same predictability, whereas we know that the higher ends of the spectrum with LASIK really sort of have the potential to fall off. That's exactly right. And so then the next question for me was, well, can LASIK do as well as, uh, correction, can SMILE do as well as LASIK does on, let's say, the one and two diopters? Right. And that had to be proven to me, and in the FDA trial, it was proven to me that they can do just as well. You know, and you bring up a good point about the flaps. And, you know, interlase and Zemer, I think, kind of changed the game. I didn't ever really like cutting flaps with the keratoma. I just didn't like it. Uh, I know it's a safe technique and it's something you can, you know, get beyond, but I've really enjoyed using the femtosecond laser for creating flaps. It just seems to be um, a pretty non-invasive technique. If you have a bad flap, you can leave it, come back, do PRK, recut a flap. You know, it just seems like an extra safety measure. Um, and when we're doing LASIK, you know, putting that flap back down, you you know, I'm always concerned about interface debris and making sure that I'm getting the gutters equal and making sure that everything is symmetric. And I do worry about patients, um, you know, coming back the next day and having rubbed their eye and having stria and that, you know, that happens sometimes. And the thing about I love about PRK is I don't have to really worry about that. But again, I'm kind of shifting um, an easier surgery potentially with a, a more difficult post-operative course and potential for haze and other things. And when I look at SMILE, I kind of almost see this um, in-between procedure where you kind of have some of the advantages of PRK and some of the, the benefits of LASIK in terms of quick recovery times. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, well, I think one, you're, you're um I'm thinking of the right word, um, being a little bit standoffish with the microkeratome, hey, you are not alone. So I can, I had a, a person that's now a partner in our practice that was a fellow of mine, and as soon as he started practice, he really didn't want anything to do with the microkeratome, even though he was right over my shoulder and we did cases together. Right. He absolutely wanted the femtosecond laser, and so it really opened my eyes that, he, I mean, he watched me. He was in a fellowship for years. So he saw it. He saw that how to manage things, he really didn't want anything to do with the, the uh, mechanical microkeratome. So believe me, you are not alone in that. So from a, how do you compare the PRK and the LASIK? I think I would be remiss without saying, many people have heard, well, smile, you know, it, it's, it's a longer post-op recovery. Well, we all know that PRK is. We know the beauty of LASIK is it's, it's you treat, four hours later, you're done. Right. There is a little bit of a difference in that, I think the, the recuperative phase for smile 
early on when, when actually it was the flex procedure, so it was a femtosecond lenticular extraction, where actually a flap was created, you peeled off the lenticule from the surface, you actually it was fully exposed. Those results, those results were longer recovery. That's changed with smile. Now with the, the higher Hertz rate laser, the recovery time, instead of being, let's say, equal to a day, they're equal to a week. And I think that's I think that's very acceptable, you know. And I wasn't necessarily implying that it's similar to PRK in terms of a delayed healing. I was more going that I like the safety of PRK, the fact that we don't have a flap to really worry about, and that comes with the consequence of a, a longer healing period. And I really am, am sort of excited about Smile because you kind of you're kind of getting the best of both worlds in some ways. I mean, that's kind of what I envision, you know, when I, I've done the Smile wet lab, you know, I've done that and, you know, was kind of curious how it would be. And it's really not that hard. I, you know, it really was pretty intuitive and um, I'm, I'm fairly excited about it. One other question I have, and you can educate me on this, what do you see in terms of induction of higher order aberrations? Are you seeing less induction of higher order aberrations with Smile? Um, as opposed to um, traditional LASIK. You know, we know that when we cut a flap we're, and we do LASIK, we're inducing some higher order aberrations. Have you seen any differences there? Has that been looked, is that something you've looked at? I personally have not looked at that, but the, the internationally it has been looked at. The, the great thing about the smile technique is the lenticule can be an aspheric lenticle that you remove. So everything that we've learned about lamellar surgery with an eczema laser, we have now just shifted that knowledge base to smile. So we could cut something that looked like a 1995-96 refractive ablation, but we don't. We're doing essentially what we do in 2015 with an eczema laser. We've learned that uh, aspect of it. And in looking at the higher order aberrations, they're equal to or less than what we see with a, a standard LASIK procedure. So if, you're a, if you were counseling a surgeon, say someone has been doing refractive surgery for a while, maybe had a roll-on, roll-off platform, so hasn't really um, invested in technology and we're thinking about you know, really doubling down on getting some technology, how would you counsel them? You know, just honestly saying, um, this, is, this is your experience, you've had eczema experience, now you have smile experience. What, what kind of advice would you give a surgeon who's kind of looking at the future of refractive surgery? You know, I great point. I like to look outside the U.S. a lot. Um, we are a little bit cloistered in the sense that we don't have full um, availability of a lot of technologies that are used elsewhere. Last summer, I did a, a symposium in uh, Europe, and the topic came up. I was leading the, the panel session, had five experienced smile surgeons from Europe and India. Um, every one of them, when I said, okay, person comes up with ex-refractive air that you could treat with smile or LASIK, what are you going to do? every one of them, except for one, I'm doing smile. The one that said he was not, is he only had the laser for a month or two. And okay. so he really hadn't, but everybody was already transitioning. So um, what most people in the outside the U.S. are doing, minus one to minus 10 sphere with up to four doctors a cylinder, they're treating that with smile. And those people essentially have converted, you know, already to 100% smile. I think that's really powerful. You know, you kind of see the wave of, and the winds of change happening overseas, mm -hmm. and it usually is pretty telling as to what's going to be happening and what trends are going to be coming to the U.S. in the next five years. And while we're on that topic, let's talk about IOLs. I know that's another thing you're passionate about and have a really interest in and, and keen understanding in IOL technology. 
Where do you feel like IOLs are now? You know, we're entering and have entered the era of refractive cataract surgery. So, um, you know, maybe give me a little bit of your experience and, and thoughts about the Calhoun lens and some other lenses that are coming out um, that may be um, potentially changing things for us on the cataract side. Yeah, I think the biggest problem we have right now with cataract surgery is it's still not refractive enough, meaning that after a single surgery, we don't have a high enough percentage of patients literally being plano sphere sure. and, and typically that's what we want if we leave any residual astigmatism even a half a unit with a multifocal IOL a large percentage of those patients are going to say no thank you um, sometimes it's incredibly small it could be uh, I've literally had a patient I didn't think this person could exist that was minus a quarter plus 50 <laughs> 20 2070 uncorrected I put the lenses in front of me and went to 2015 I said this is this is not possible there's no way somebody could be like this so I just put the cylinder in front of him and he was 2030 and I didn't even talk about his near vision once I put the minus a quarter in front of him he's 2015 I did not think it was possible you cannot do that same refractive error in front of a person with a monofocal IOL or a person with that's had LASIK and have that type of uncorrected acuity so the telling point is that it's inherent with multifocal technology that there are some patients that you can't be anything but perfect. Right. So the point being, even if we look at our monofocal data, you know, 50 or 60% of the eyes are going to be inside, plus or minus a half a sphere and cylinder, but 40% are not. Right. So those people historically have gone to the optical shop. Now we're trying to tell them, oh, you're really doing pretty good, but blah, blah, blah. And a lot of surgeons, I think, are not getting those people across the finish line. If you don't get them across the finish line, they're not going to be happy. So you might say, well, why is or why are only 7% of the IOLs implanted in the U.S. or outside the U.S.? In Europe, it's the same number. Roughly 6 to 7% of all IOLs implanted are multifocal. So as I mentioned earlier to you, we do not have the perfect cheer, just like Terrio, Sherry O'Terry and Will Farrell. We do not have the perfect IOL yet. Um, so maybe let's talk about the Calhoun lens. That's sure. one lens from a refractive standpoint, my experience in the FDA trial, it is refractively more predictable than LASIK. I mean, it's a tighter grouping. We don't talk about plus or minus a half. We talk about are you inside or outside a quarter diopter of sphere or a quarter diopter of cylinder. It's another, I guess, another factor of, of accuracy that we simply don't have. That, in my mind, is a game changer. If you want to do refractive surgery and nail it, the Calhoun just seems like such a wonderful technique. And I agree. I think the Calhoun is really exciting technology. And, you know, talking to people um, who have had experience in the clinical trials, I mean, your experience is very similar to, the, you know, the things I've heard from them also. The only downside is, you know, it is another procedure. Even though it's non-invasive, um, it does require more chair time, more visits, potentially the purchase or lease or rental of a UV light source. Um, and so there, those are sort of the barriers to um getting patients happy potentially early. And that's what I look at as a cataract surgeon who's you know doing refractive cataract surgery or doing the best job that I can at refractive cataract surgery. You know, I really want one procedure and one lens um, that I can use over and over again that's gonna make all my patients 20-20 or you know, in that range, you know, under half a diopter. And like you said, we're just really not there yet. And you know, and we've talked about this in the past also, you know, my thought is that effective lens position is something that is really that last hurdle that we haven't really gotten over. And the fact that biometry really, every every biometric formula 
just takes bits and pieces of data and crunches it and weights it differently to determine effective lens position. But we're at the end of the day, we're just guessing. And so, you know, you've got a five millimeter cataract and you're putting in a one millimeter lens that can sit in a, a variety of locations when it's all said and done. And so that to me is, is something that, you know, and, and you know my background, I'm working on something to try and help solve that problem, uh, which, you know, is not here yet. But I, I really am excited about the future when we talk about um, better technologies with biometry, new lenses that are coming out. I think the Calhoun is going to be a fantastic addition. Um, but the holy grail, as you said, is you know having the perfect lens, or in my mind, having one procedure in the operating room where you can really nail people right there, and before they leave the OR, you kind of know they're going to be good. So that's something I think we're both really looking forward to, and hopefully in our lifetimes we'll <laughs> we'll be able to uh, to get that done. Um, so John, I know you also have some interest in, in practice development and looking at the landscape of managed care. And I think that as we, you know, we try to be surgeons, but we also have to kind of keep our pulse on the changing elements of healthcare. Um, so I'd love to know what's going on in your market, what kind of changes you're seeing, and give me what you think uh, some changes are going to be that maybe other ophthalmologists need to keep their eye on um, going forward. Yeah, I, it's interesting. When I left residency, I was reading these articles about PPMCs. The, the, the topic of the day in 1994-95 was Physician Practice Management Corporations. And I said, I want to get so far away <laughs> from that that I can't even scream loud enough. So I didn't want anything to do with that. I really didn't want anything to do with managed care. And again, I'm a refractive guy, so if I was solo, I would want nothing to do with any of that. Well, it turns out I'm now part of a group of 40 you know, doctors, we have combined MDs and ODs, you know, I can't run away with it because it's part of a practice that I'm deeply involved with over the last 19 years. What I see on the horizon um, is we know right now that roughly 75% of, let's say, med surge is fee-based, fee-for-service. 25% is kind of in these advantage Medicare programs. We know Kind of a capitated yes, situation. Yes. And so they're trying to you know, balance their financial risk and so forth. Um, we know, and everybody's telling us, that that number is going to go to 50-50. And well, how are they going to do that? Well, we're going to, again, we're going to have to do more, probably for less, probably getting paid less per procedure. But that's just the way it's going to be because right. there's such a large volume of people that need to be treated. What we're seeing in Kansas City, I'm sure it's no different than any other uh, metropolitan area in the U.S., is something called skinny networks. The insurance companies are trying to get providers that aren't surgerizing and expensing every patient out the wazoo, if you will, to, I think, providers that are going to be less apt to do that. They're going to do things that are appropriate. They're going to take good care. So they're going to make the number of providers on the panel smaller. And when they do that, they can control the amount of revenue that takes to take yeah, care of patients. And that, to me, just seems like... Um, maybe a good way to control costs, but a bad way to take care of patients. You know, if I'm a doctor and you're paying me a certain number of dollars to manage, you know, the care of a group of people, the incentive is to not provide care. So it's really, it, it really disincentivizes surgeons and physicians from potentially recommending treatments when patients could be living a healthier or better life. And you know when I look at cataract surgery, and I and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it, when you look at the value of the procedure in terms of the quality of life for the patient, in terms of impact, and you know decrease hip fracture rates and, and decrease mortality rate, 
for the you know compared that to the actual cost of the procedure, it's probably the single most valuable uh, procedure uh, in medicine right now. And just to to think about having to uh, have a group of patients who are going to be managed by ophthalmologists who are essentially going to be incentivized to hold on to those patients for longer and let those cataracts develop and get worse, you know, it just it just doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't seem right to me. I mean, is that, am I wrong here? Gary, you're an American. <laughs> so I'm, you know, it's oxymoronic, managed care. In some ways, when you look at the financial side, if you're a bean counter, you really want to manage to not care. Right. And so we're on the same page. And, you know, hopefully, just like the HMO days were very, very short in the U.S., and very few um, capitated contracts live long term. Maybe we're going to learn that there will be a there will be a fight back from patients that no, I will not accept this. That being said, we have had a capitated contract in Kansas City now for 15 years, and the company has absolutely loved it. The patients have gotten great care. We've had great reviews from the patients, so it can work. But again, when the when the providers are taking a financial risk at the end of the year, they gave you, let's say, let's say they gave you a million dollars, and at the end of the year you spent 1.1 million, that means you actually paid somebody $100,000 to do their care. Right. So that's, that's a really bad place to be. So we have to find something that's acceptable to all. Well, this is a complex topic. I mean, no, no one really has the answer at this point, but it is important for us to be uh, considering all sides of, of these issues. So, well, John, I just want to say thank you so much for coming in and giving us your, your thoughts and, and opinions on, on not just refractive surgery, but cataract surgery and, and also managed care. And that's it for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Like what you hear? Visit us at itube.net backslash podcast to download more episodes. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Dr. Gary Wirtz. This episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid is sponsored by Centurion from Alcon.